Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. This podcast is for week six of BYU's fall semester 2022. I'm Mark Olivier, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined today by Dr. Julie Allen, professor of comparative arts and letters here at BYU. Dr. Allen did her PhD at Harvard in Germanic languages and literatures and Scandinavian studies. Her work explores questions of cultural identity in 19th, 20th, and 21st century Northern Europe, particularly with regard to literature, religion, silent film, and migration. Welcome, Dr. Allen. Thanks. Pleased to be here. So today we're going to talk about the Swedish filmmaker, you correct me if I say it wrong, Ruben Östlund, 2014 film, Force Majeure. He has won the top prize at Cannes twice now, and once with The Square, which we showed at International Cinema last semester, and more recently with Triangle of Sadness. And Force Majeure, that we're talking about this week, won the jury prize at Cannes in 2014. So pretty accomplished director, and I think a fun director, honestly. He's pretty unorthodox. I feel like one of the reasons that he's so lauded is because he's so different. He didn't he sort of taught himself making ski movies and then went yeah. into fiction films. Right. It's so wild. So he, before he even went to film school, he yeah. was doing skiing movies, which yeah. makes this movie so particularly right. important. But and it's a little bit yeah. of that sort of Riefenstahl connection, like the bag film, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I do find him to be really different because when I watched Triangle of Sadness at Toronto Film Festival this year, then I thought, this is a film that a 12-year-old boy would like and apparently all the critics at Cannes. That's Who pretty, quite an achievement, so right? Yes. I mean, it felt very, you know, the, the humor was pretty scatological. So yeah, I think the earthiness is part of his style. Like it's, I think it appears in all of his films in certain ways that just the grounding of these are ordinary people who eat and sleep and poop and, you know. Yes, exactly. So let's talk a little bit first about the film's title, because I think it's interesting. People hear Force Majeure and they think, oh, it's a French film you know, right. but the title actually is a legal term, I guess, that talks about some kind of almost like an act of God, something that's a ruptures an agreement or a contract. Yeah, well, during right? the pandemic, force majeure became a term we all knew because you could see whether or not the pandemic counted as a force majeure in getting out of all of your travel contracts. Oh, yeah. And a yeah. lot of people said it didn't. Perfect. Yeah. So, but that's not the original title. It's kind of funny, you know, like, let's change, change it to a title that's a French term. And yeah, the original... Yeah. Yeah. So what's what's the original? So the original title is Tourist, which means just tourist. So there's a, this whole culture of Swedish vacationing mm -hmm. that is implied by that. Swedes going to foreign locations, living out a completely different kind of life, not just Swedes, like Scandinavians in general. The woman that Ebba meets in the hotel, who's on vacation from her kids, on mm -hmm. vacation from her marriage. I think all of that is sort of implied by that title, Tudis, that the rules are different yeah. when you're on vacation. Or semester, as they say in Swedish. Oh, right. They're in the French Alps, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that there's this opening shot of the film that really sets up the idea of the tourists really well. Do you want to talk a little bit about what happens there? Yeah, well, so you mean when they come out onto the piste and they get the photographer? Yes, the family portrait. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he spends so much time making them cuddle together. And like, there's a moment when Thomas bangs his helmet against Eva's helmet mm -hmm. that I think is sort of a foreshadowing of the rest of the film. But but it's this like appearances, Instagram life. And, mm -hmm. and later on, she's looking at those photographs of this perfect family shortly before her family implodes, right? Uh -huh. And so I do think it sets it up to like, this is going to be sun and gorgeous and vacation and happy and all the good things. 
yeah, that's very presentational. Let's all get ready. But he really also allows you to feel the awkwardness of the oh, setup, yeah. right? Like, now lean over here and try this. Now put your arm around her there. Now cuddle together. And, <laughs> and it, yeah, and so in that way, it shows you how much the family can be a staged performance oh, um, for others and for yourselves. And I the guess. whole relationship is this staged performance for themselves, which is what then breaks down. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about the breakdown, which I think the title Force Majeure works really well. What is the force majeure that kind of becomes the central event that sparks all of the conflict in the film? Well, I think, I mean, it's an avalanche. And mm -hmm. you expect it with a title like that to be a disastrous avalanche uh -huh. sort of on the lines of like, you know, swamps the hotel and you're digging your family out of this grave. But it's really a petty force majeure. Like, it's not a force majeure. Yeah, opposite, I mean, actually. isn't it a controlled? It's even like yeah, a, controlled a controlled avalanche. avalanche. That almost gets out of control and it reaches the balcony of the restaurant mm -hmm. where they're having lunch and it looks like it's going to swamp them and so everyone starts first taking photographs which is yeah because so at first it's like oh like, pretty oh, this avalanche, it's amazing uh -huh. and then oh my gosh it's happening it's coming closer <laughs> and of course we find out it's later it's not actually the avalanche it's just the smoke from the avalanche mm -hmm. that's coming up on the terrace but in that moment of panic mm -hmm. we see tomas grab his gloves and his phone and just book it out of there <laughs> right and, while his wife and eva grabs the kids and hunkers <laughs> down and they're screaming for daddy and screaming for tomas and it's this really traumatic moment for her where he doesn't seem to even realize that what he's done is at all weird right if your first instinct is to save your cell phone rather than your kids right it's really seen as sort of a parental failure and and i think something that they really wanted to look at is the types of the expectations that I think the director said is in most Hollywood films of creating like a heroic male figure that in the moment of danger is going to do something, you know, wonderful and save it's people. Chivalrous, right? It's right. Like women and children first. We hear that at the end of the movie on the bus, which uh -huh. is again a, a non It's a non-issue. Yes. Um, and Mass is saying like, women and children off the bus first, right? But this is not that uh -huh. this happened. And so that contrast, I think, is very, very clear. It's... It's so awkward when you see him sheepishly creep back and then act as if nothing happened. There's yeah. like this shame. And, and then that seems to be what like spirals and gets more and more. I, I love how he's able to take this one little event and basically build the whole movie out yeah. of it. Why does he keep digging his own grave in a sense? Why does he make things worse, do you think, by denying that that's what he did. Well, I think part of it is gender politics in Scandinavia. Like, there's really high expectations for men to be better than they traditionally have been, to be mm -hmm. more engaged fathers, to be better partners, to support their wives and be there for dinner and make dinner. And, mm -hmm. and so there's this idea of this sort of ideal Nordic family that he has just failed. I mean, he's like, this is like the sort of, for want of a better example, the American capitalist version <laughs> of, you know, it's me first and everybody else second, uh -huh. right? And so I think that part of it is he just can't accept that he has failed that ideal. And so he relies instead on this rhetorical slate of hand. Mm -hmm. I experienced it differently than you did, right? right. Like I have an objective right to have had a different experience. But when confronted and she asks, what did you experience? Mm -hmm. He can't actually even articulate anything. Right. And it's weird in this era where now we're video evidence of something doesn't mean that people accept it. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems this idea that I've got this on video of you doing this. On and, your phone. Yeah. And and yet he continues to deny it. It's just this weird kind of post-truth feeling. And, you know, it, it just strikes me how 
how impactful that ends up being and how that ends up leading to these conflicts that, I mean, in one scene, for example, he does what I think at the time there were YouTube videos going on of people doing like ugly cries or they mm -hmm. called it the man cry. Yeah. And there's this really great scene where he's basically doing that, you know, hiding behind his hands, mm -hmm. right? Crying. And yet she calls him on it. Yeah. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, I think if we actually dial back a little bit, the first yeah. time she brings it up, they're at dinner with this Swedish friend that she's met. So Eva's Norwegian, the Swedish friend and this American guy she's picked up. Yes. And so there is this sort of sense of like this burgeoning new relationship and she in this established relationship. And that's a thread that comes throughout. Like how do people relate to each other? And so she brings this up and he denies it. And then later on, he's like, oh, that's such a terrible dinner. Yeah, it was incredibly yeah. awkward, right? right? You're just, when you, if you watch a couple essentially arguing in front uh -huh. of you at dinner. Yeah, especially when the other couple has no relationship to each other, really. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then the second time that happens is slightly more intimate. It's with his friend, Mats, who's got this 20-year-old girlfriend. Uh -huh. And they've come to dinner, and the girlfriend is talking about something trivial, and Ebba breaks in and tells the story again. But this is more accountable because this is a guy that knows Thomas and uh -huh. is you know, holding him accountable and tries to intervene and say, well, maybe just instinct kicked in, right? And so he has this second opportunity and he doubles down on, no, I didn't. And she shows him a video and he's like, no, I didn't, I didn't do that. I right. didn't experience that. But then I think he realizes that there's no more room. Like he spends uh -huh. most of the evenings sort of staring into space uh -huh. and they have all these habits of going out into the hall for privacy, which is so funny. Uh -huh. It's the most public space they can be right. in, you know, the janitor right. looking down on them. And in this private public space mm -hmm. where he decides finally, okay, I can't keep denying it. I've got to admit. He tries to admit in the in the most pathetic way possible. First, mm -hmm. like the fake crying, uh -huh. and then like the full on oh, sobbing, howling in the hall. Like, uh -huh. People are looking, and it's so embarrassing, right? And then they get locked out of their apartment <laughs> while he's howling in the hall. And then he has the audacity, of course, to say that I'm a victim of my impulses. I'm a victim here. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so it's he, so awful. he kind of yeah. goes from like, I can't embrace this. I'm going to embrace this 100%. Like, look how terrible I am. I've uh -huh. cheated on you. I've lied to you. I cheat in games with the children. Uh -huh. Like, fully objectifying uh -huh. himself in a way to make her pity him. Right. So you go from deniability a moment of recognized culpability to I'm actually the victim here. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Skips over responsibility entirely yeah. at this point in this journey. Yeah. I think it's interesting going back to the way that they litigate what happened in front of others. Mm -hmm. It seems like that's another level of performance where they just are going to take advantage of whenever there's somebody else there to spring their version of events off of somebody else and use them to... You know, yeah, what, what do you think about that? I think Ebba is in a relationship with a man that is emotionally unavailable. Uh -huh. like we have that from the very beginning when they are checking in. She's meeting the Swedish friend and she's like, oh, Thomas has spent so much time at work. He's got these five days to focus on his family. Mm -hmm. And so they have that first day together and they all sleep in the same bed. But clearly there's no communication because as soon as this happens, she can't talk to him. He won't talk to her. Right. So she has to keep appealing to other people to get him to talk to her, like in this three-way communication, uh -huh. I think. And so you realize just how completely emotionally arid their relationship is. Like they right. spend all this time in intimate situations. We see them lying in bed as a whole family. We see them brushing teeth. We see them urinating uh -huh. in the bathroom a lot. And yet in these most intimate spaces, there's no room for emotional intimacy. I don't think there's any point in the film where Thomas actually has authentically vulnerable emotional uh -huh. connection to his wife. So 
I want to talk a little bit about this, you know, in a way it's this crisis of masculinity that he's going through. You have that one scene that's very like the sweaty, sweaty, sauna. shirtless, um, <laughs> kind of being in touch yeah. with your inner wolf or something right. of all these men. How does that play? Because it kind of seems, you know, like it's randomly dropped into the film at some mm -hmm. point. How do you understand that? Well, I think if you, again, think back to the, that's the day he spent skiing with Matt. Mm -hmm. That's after sort of guy's day out. And at one point after they've you know, done these really dangerous off-pist runs, Thomas says, let's just talk. Mm -hmm. And Matt's is like, about what? Mm -hmm. And Thomas can't figure out how to talk. And so he falls down in the snow and Matt's is like, just scream. I got to therapy for two years. Uh -huh. And then five <laughs> minutes of screaming really did more for me. And so Thomas tries to scream and it's ridiculous, right? <laughs> you can't really scream. Can't do it. And so then he goes home and he can't get into the room and he's wandering around and just sort of falls into this wolf pack. Mm -hmm. And it's really kind of a, again, a very Nordic image of this kind of sauna, mm -hmm. the steam and the alcohol and the naked men. But it's also sort of a frat party. But he doesn't know these guys. They're right. not friends. Right. And so it's not a release for him. And so by the time he comes back to the room, he looks just as dejected as before. <laughs> and so like the catharsis that he could have gotten from this moment, this release, uh -huh. is completely denied him. Uh-huh. So a lot is said about Thomas and his sort of male gender roles. But I mean, I think this is equally about the family and about women's roles. Can you comment a little bit about like how you think a women's identity is engaged by this film? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because we don't get to find out very much about Ebba. Mm -hmm. Like she only exists as the mother of Vera and Harry right. and as the wife of Thomas. And she doesn't have any, she has the casual friend there, but no real interactions. We don't know if she works. She probably does. Most Nordic women do. Mm -hmm. But we see that she is the primary caregiver. She's the one looking out for the children. And the avalanche scene makes that clear. Her instinct is to die for the children. Right. Or his is to go for himself. And so it's interesting that her response to his betrayal is to step back. And to say, I need a day on my own. I want to be on the slopes myself. Uh -huh. And of course, Harry is then distraught. It's like, you're going to get divorced. Like, this is all going to destroy right. my life. And then the day when he goes skiing alone, she sleeps in really late. Uh -huh. And they don't go sleep. And so you see her questioning all these things about like, what am I even doing with my life? Right. And then the conversation with a friend about open marriage relationships and uh -huh. jealousy. I think it's all her trying to grapple with what defines me. Right. Like, is it my children? Which I think is a question that Scandinavian women have not been willing to grapple with they have very much that I can have it all huh. you know I can work and I can have great childcare uh -huh. and I can do these things and so here's like but if if this contract you've entered into mm -hmm. suddenly proves to be void right then where do you start to rebuild and it's sort of treated like I mean oh it's this betrayal of her role yeah. you know like somehow he can sulk yeah. on his own but right. if she but if she does or just yeah. decides she needs some time alone then everything's collapsed. Right. Our whole family is in danger. Right. She's the right? linchpin of all this. Yeah. Yeah. So more broadly, what would you say this says about the family as kind of a unit? Because this is here, we've got this like isolated example, you know, the family as tourists, the family presenting itself. And I guess even in some cases, maybe the background and everything else that the sonic qualities that are mm -hmm. happening here of like, Constant, right? Explosions. Yeah, well, I think that's what makes it so brilliant, right? Is yeah. you have this shiny surface mm -hmm. of the family that we see in the glossy photographs, right. we see it in the glossy snow fields, we see the snow machines going across. Mm -hmm. But then you have these subterranean rumbles caused by the snow cannons. And so we have these sort of moments in their families too, like mm -hmm. 
disruption. Like there's a part when after the avalanche scene, the kids are just so angry. They're like, get out, get uh -huh. out. You know, uh -huh. the parents are driven into the hall by these kids. And it's such a privileged family. Mm -hmm. I mean, a very white, very upper middle class right. family on a ski holiday. Yeah, ski France, holiday. Yeah. You know, can it be any more stereotypical uh -huh. and privileged? And yet behind that glossy surface, there are these rumbles and like there are these explosions that could cause an avalanche, could be a major disaster or could be this non-disaster like we find. Right. Like, I mean, I feel like there's sort of these background tension, almost that's like war. You have the drone that's used, <laughs> yes. that's kind of evocative of, yeah. of drone strike, even though it's just a toy. In you, the living room. Right. Yeah. yeah. You've got, <laughs> right, drone strikes in the living room. You've got avalanche you've got these you know sounds from the controlled avalanche you've got the tribe of howling wild men, men, wild men. Berserkers, maybe. yeah you mentioned when we were talking right before we started here about the kinds of scenes that maybe you might just think of as background or inconsequential like what could you explain a little bit about that yeah well i mean Scandinavia, I mean, Norway has a lot of mountains. Denmark has almost none. But Scandinavians generally have to go elsewhere to ski. And so to have those endless snow fields is mm -hmm. something that desirable and attractive as a tourist. It looks like a tourist brochure. And yet we see so many shots. It's not just establishing like, okay, we're here in France, right? We see night after night as it breaks up each day of the ski vacation. We see those machines crossing over these empty spaces. And then we see their window. And it's, I, mean, yeah. I think he's, he makes it unavoidable for us to connect those landscapes to this emotional relationship, which mm -hmm. is completely frigid and mm -hmm. arid. Like we don't ever see them being intimate. We see one time they're sort of trying and the kids interrupt and it's, they're in this very strange, difficult phase of their marriage. Mm -hmm. But really Tomas's emotional landscape, I think is what's represented there. Totally icy, totally empty. Uh -huh. and, and when he's digging down, I think part of the reason he can't react to the accusation is because he's got nothing there. Like he's supposed to feel sorry doesn't feel sorry he doesn't feel anything <laughs> and so he can't produce remorse and when right. he tries he turns into ugly crying but it's it's just so obviously artificial that you don't believe it yeah exactly i think that he's got some really interesting techniques he does like to sort of leave the camera in place a lot mm -hmm. and let things happen within the scene yeah i think he said that he will sometimes just do take after take after take exploring what can happen within a set frame mm -hmm. and, you know, seeing how that goes. He's not concerned with getting like shot, counter shot yeah. and putting us in some ways. So this goes with what you were saying about the iciness is we as viewers of the film aren't necessarily kind of stitched into the film by identifying with one character. Do you think? Anyone, I think or? the janitor. Like I think okay. that the janitor has this outsider position where he's looking down from his upper level across the mm -hmm. atrium down at their room. And we spend a lot of time in that position. And so we're kind of oh. looking down and I'm going like, what is happening? Why are they out there in their underwear? Why are they out there crying in the hall? Why are they living their whole marriage in the hallway? Yeah. Um, and so I think if anyone, that's, that's where we stand. That's great. That's, that's really fascinating. Yeah. Cause it does seem like, you know, we're these often perplexed observers. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty standard to go to a movie and to see a communication problem and just say, just, can Figure you just communicate? Yeah. <laughs> just talk about it. You know, it's always like a frustration. And, and here somehow, though, it doesn't feel fake or anything. It feels like each thing is a natural consequence of his initial denial or, you know. Except maybe like that. that last ski day, like where yeah. he's totally socked in. They can't see anything. And she says, you know, are you sure this is safe? He's like, yeah, that's fine. You know, I'll go first. You go last. We'll bring the kids between uh -huh. us. And then there's that moment when she sees them through the woods, when she's peeing in the woods, another uh -huh. peeing scene. And 
you think she has to decide, am I going to go down there to them? So right. that's, that was the day he goes alone with the kids. And then the, the last day when she, he goes off and she doesn't, doesn't come mm-hmm. and you never explain what happened. He carries her down, but then she's able to walk away. I think it's the most uncertain moment of the film is like, what happens now? Like, do they leave the kids? Is this Hansel and Gretel moment? Right. You know, like, right. They, they, there's just no clarity at all about where we've been. And it kind of feels like, all right, that's what we're accepting, right? Is we're accepting a lack of clarity. Uh-huh. Well, and there is this, so there's this bizarre redemption, right? At the, with the bus. With the bus. It, it kind of seems like it allows them to heal in this moment. And yet it's also Farcical, nothing. Yeah. How do you see that? Is it necessary for people to have almost invented problems to solve in order to restore cohesion? Or, you know, what do you take from this ending? Well, I think part of it is like in that contrast between Ebba and her friend, mm-hmm. because the friend is the one person who stays on the bus. Like the bus driver is, you know, not a good driver. Mm-hmm. She's like, I'm going to go. So she gets the ride down the mountain. And so it's Ebba's cautiousness, I think. And mm-hmm. it, I think in some ways it's not a redemption that, that she's settling for this marriage that is opaque uh-huh. and difficult and arid because it's familiar and it's safe, right? Mm. And the friend is like the risk taker who goes off down the mountain and, and Ebba yeah. gets off and has this long slog. And it's sort of like, this is going to be the rest of your life, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can have a long slog with his family. Following along, yeah. dragged along. To, you know, to figure it out, to get where you're going. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, I love this movie. I'm glad that we're showing it again. I think that people will... You know, it's interesting in some ways. It's maybe less disturbing than the square that we showed last time. <laughs> but um, it still makes you really uncomfortable. I think that's one of Östlund's real gifts is making you so uncomfortable, both in the watching. I mean, it has that sort of British office cringy feeling right. of like, I can't bear to see these people behaving like yes. this. But yeah. also this mirror, like there's a lot of mirror shots. And so you know, we're looking at them in the mirror, but we're also looking at ourselves in the mirror. Like, to what extent do I do this? Do I right. you know, paper things over, pretend like it's okay, live an Instagram life, uh-huh. you know, and just let everything look glossy and right. really be empty inside? right. Yeah, that's good. So hopefully people will see themselves mirrored in some ways, but hopefully not in the worst (laughs) possible ways. But he is such an astute observer of dynamics and also dynamics within a couple. In Triangle of Sadness, there's this great scene that he says he took from his real life early on with his wife where the bill comes at dinner Mm -hmm. and there's this couple and the man wants her to pay and he sees himself as this feminist like he paid last time now it's her time and she just looks at her phone instead until finally he (laughs) pays and just from that thing it goes into a huge argument and so once again I think he is good at just taking one little thing and then just spinning a lot out of it which is a lot how life is it's the little things that often set off arguments that are about broader issues oh sure and I think that because it's this idyllic setting, you know, this mm-hmm. perfect French ski resort. And then when they first meet Mats and his girlfriend, they're saying, oh, we've been having a fantastic time. Oh, the weather's mm-hmm. been perfect. Oh, it's been great. Because it's supposed to be all of those things. You're paying a lot of money right. to go have this perfect experience. Mm-hmm. But it's a sense of how utopia and dystopia are so closely conjoined. that yes. It goes from being a utopian experience to a dystopian experience by one moment, right? And uh-huh. It hinges on just this perception of it. And I think we see that so, so clearly here, how it doesn't take much like our perception of something to then shift and realize that, oh, we've been fooling ourselves uh-huh. all along. Beware your vacation. Yeah, the avalanche exactly. that happens could be a sort of like, what's that guy, Pike, who writes those terrible, like, go uh-huh. to the mountains for a weekend and everything goes wrong, like, teenage yeah. novels. <laughs> exactly, yeah. 
Oh, that's fantastic. I'm glad that you've been able to talk to our listeners about this. But I want to end with some rapid fire questions just for fun. So people can get to know you a little better. So I'm going to ask you about five questions and we'll see. So favorite part of the movie theater to sit in? Okay, so my husband is a movie snob. Uh And so we always have to sit about three rows up on the upper section as central as possible. Uh-huh. Like it can't be too far back. It can't be too far down, but you want to be right in that sweet spot. The ideal of... viewing distance. Exactly. <laughs> I'm always baffled by people who want to sit in the front row. Yeah, but... no, I've, I've thought about like not going if I've had to get like in the third row. I'm like, why would anyone go <laughs> yeah. in the third row? Okay. Here's one. What's a movie that you have seen more than five times? So there are movies I really, really like. Mm-hmm. One that I love is called A Town Like Alice. Mm-hmm. And it's an old eighties British movie based on a novel about a woman who is trapped in Malaysia during World War II wow. and ends up wandering on the island with a group of other women because there's no camp for women. Huh. Um, and what I love about it is that she then, after the war, the story is a frame story. And so she's telling about her time in Malaysia after she's inherited this money from an, an uncle. Uh-huh. And then she goes to Australia to try and find the Australian soldier who had gotten himself crucified for her. And I love that second half especially because wow. they build this town together in Australia with this money that her grandfather had earned on the Australian gold fields. And it takes kind of like Unbroken takes the the war story and puts it back into real life. It's not just this moment of suffering, but it's this moment of connection, of uh-huh. opportunity. She goes back with her money and digs a well for the women in the village where they had lived. And it's just a really lovely I've never seen it. You've just given me a movie to put on my to see list. Yeah, so Is it a town like Alice? A town like or Alice. Like yes. Alice. Yeah. A town like Alice. Like, like Alice Springs. That's the town okay. I'm trying to emulate. That's amazing. That's cool. Okay. Tell me what's your favorite genre of film. You know, I like so many films, but I really, really enjoy fantasy. And mm. so like Serenity and like space opera, uh-huh. I just find it so fun, partly because it's so unexpected. Like anything can happen in uh-huh. fantasy. And so like you have all kinds of cool CGI, but also just things. And so like my family, we watch a lot of Tenet and Interstellar, mm-hmm. a lot of Christopher Nolan movies. I guess those aren't really fantasy, they're more sci-fi. So sci-fi fantasy is that sort of genre you can lump together. I want a but... space opera about BYU. Oh my gosh, it would be amazing. <laughs> can we have like aliens or dragons it or would just spaceships? Be great. BYU in space, you know. Okay, what about your least favorite genre? So again, this is part of form of my husband. He uh-huh. is a, an omnivore when it comes to films. And uh-huh. so he really likes cheesy 80s school comedies uh-huh. and I just can't stand can't them. Take I can't take it. Like I have, a, I have a, a kind of low stupid comedy threshold and so. Too many proms and. Yeah, something like that. I just, I just think I've, I've already lived through that. Why would I want to live Why through it again? Why would I want to live through it again? Yeah. Okay. Finally, what's a movie that you wish more people would see? So I work a lot on silent film mm-hmm. and people don't seem to appreciate how amazing silent film is. And so one of the films I really love is from 1916. It's called The Eskimo Baby. And wow. it stars Asta Nielsen, this Danish actress, playing a Greenlandic woman who comes back to Berlin with an ethnographer who's sort of collected her as a sample. And it's this fabulous Chaplin-esque comedy where she's trying to figure out how the light switches work. And, you know, then she, his family's trying to marry her off, him off to this bourgeois woman. And so she recognizes this competition. She gets in a canoe and she paddles down the spray into downtown Berlin, trying to find clothes. Does not aware and puts a corset on outside of her clothes. And, <laughs> and it just, it's this beautiful and she totally wins in the end right and it's just we should, so fun okay we should show that sometime oh, absolutely yeah we'll we'll have you do another podcast <laughs> or a lecture even okay well this has been great and thank you so much dr allen for talking today um, so it's been fun. a pleasure thank you. yeah all right well thank you thank you for joining us today on from the booth 
This podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our sound engineer, Hannah Guevara, and Johnny Stallings, who composed our podcast soundtrack. Visit ic.byu.edu for upcoming films and showtimes. Until next week, keep seeing great international movies.